Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, pictures of fast food used in advertising have long had a tendency to make the items look a little more appetizing than they do when you actually buy one. But just how much of an issue is that? Well, a series of class action suits filed in the U.S. against major chains, including McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, claims those images are in fact deceptive. We find out how they're going to try to make their case. Torrential rain turned the annual Burning Man Festival in Nevada into a colossal mud bath over the weekend, stranding some for days and seeing others make the long and muddy track to get out. It attracts about 70,000 people. What was it like to be there? We meet someone who was. Well, it's back to school for hundreds of thousands of students across the country today. And one of the issues on the agenda these days is the use of smartphones in class. One Alberta junior high school teacher lets us know how his school is tackling the problem. But first, after nearly three weeks, some 19,000 evacuees from Yellowknife are getting set to head home. The city's mayor joins me to talk about the massive planning effort that's been underway for weeks now uh, to make sure that the return is as seamless as can be. You know, it's been weeks now since nearly 20,000 people packed up and left Yellowknife for a, a journey they didn't know how long they would have to be out. And now everything looks good for the evacuation order set to be lifted at noon local time tomorrow to be replaced by an evacuation alert. So not entirely out of the woods, but looking promising. Uh, Mike Westcock, who's the wildfire information officer for the territory, said today that they are yesterday, rather, that there were no challenges expected for Highway 1 for the next few days. That's the main road, obviously, between Yellowknife and the Alberta border. There are other communities in, in between there as well who have also been evacuated. Uh, Kieran Tester works for the Yellowknife Dene First Nation Emergency Operations. He says preparations are being made for an influx of traffic as tens of thousands or 20,000 people at least, come back. We're overjoyed that folks are coming home. Uh, it's been a very long wait. It's been very tough days, long days, and not just for the people on the ground, uh, but for the evacuees who've been separated from their homes and fam families. Right. Meantime, essential workers, of course, because you can't just reopen a city in one fell swoop. Essential workers continue to arrive in Yellowknife today. And... Uh, the shelves have been filled, apparently, at the Yellowknife Co-op, and the grocery store is also getting ready for all those people to come back. Uh, Justin Nelson is the store's general manager. He says it's been very emotional seeing familiar faces return in recent days. You know, I've been here since day one of the evacuation, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that uh, tomorrow it'll finally be over and people will be able to return to uh, beautiful Yellowknife. Of course, people have been told that upon returning, they should be self-reliant for 72 hours when they get back just to try and help get everything into order. Uh, someone who's been very busy the last few weeks and is no doubt just as busy tonight is Yellowknife's Mayor, Rebecca Alti, and she joins me now. Rebecca, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, this is good news. It's, it, it looks like it's happening tomorrow. I, but, but wow, what a, what a huge undertaking to try to you know bl sort of clear the path for all those people to be able to come back. Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, it's been an, a, yeah a difficult three weeks, and the reentry planning that's been happening over the past two weeks it's it's just it's a, it's a lot. There's so many chicken and egg questions of like, you know, what defines a critical business? What's because we can't have everybody come back at once because then we'd overwhelm the healthcare system, and if you bring this business back, you know, we need to increase the healthcare and we'll need daycares and we'll need this and this and this. So 
um, a lot of really good work by staff. And so hopefully, fingers crossed, all goes smooth tomorrow. Uh, you know, I feel like every day is a new challenge and we we address the challenges that are thrown at us. Today was, there's one final gas station on your trip up in Fort Providence and that's between Fort Providence and Yellowknife, a three-hour drive, so you have to fill up in, in Fort Providence. And um, unfortunately, one of the food trucks knocked out a couple power lines, which knocked down the power, so then people weren't able to get gas for, I think it was three or four hours, so they were delayed there, and those are the critical workers trying to come back. So right. it's, uh, yeah, every day just a new it, challenge, it reminds but you, you take it. Yeah. It reminds you, because there's just that one road, that if even the most sort of things, something that would just be com- not important at all in a city like Toronto, for instance, if it happens there and power goes out, then everything stops, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Because then crews had to go from Yellowknife, so they're driving there three hours. You hope you bring enough parts or that it's actually and it's some, a, something that can be fixed. And so, um, you know, it's like you have a plan. You think of all the scenarios, you try to fill those holes, and then you're like, okay, um, didn't anticipate the food truck taking out the power line that then takes out the gas station that then delays people for four hours. But, you know, it is that is the one of the things that we say is, like, to be prepared because there could be delays on the highway. You know, have some food, have some water. If something like this happens, you got to take the deep breath and, you know, wait the situation out until until the help can arrive. What's your sense of, of how people are going to return at this point? Because I know obviously you're going to have to bring back some people by plane because you evacuated a number of people by flight. Uh, and then many people drove and you don't want them all on the road at the same time, obviously, coming back. Uh, how do you think that's going to st- – how are you trying to stagger that? Yeah, so we did do the, the phased approach with the healthcare workers and critical municipal staff as well as critical businesses like grocery stores and pharmacy. So those folks have been kind of trickling in for the past week. And then for the population, we didn't go neighborhood by neighborhood. I know some folks have suggested that just because folks are really spread out across the province of Alberta and even farther than that, you know, I've heard of BC, Saskatchewan, Montana, um, so it's not like when we were leaving where everybody was leaving from one location. When we're coming back, it's going to be spread out. I've also, you know, the the hotel accommodations, if you're staying with the evacuation centers, they are good till Friday. So some people are choosing to, to not come back tomorrow. They want to wait for, for it to die down a bit. And then you've got all the folks that are taking the plane. So we originally there was about five to six seven planes, I think, like evacuation charters that we're going to resume tomorrow. And I think that number's increased even more. So the territorial government's working on that part, and they were able to get more aircrafts, or the aircrafts are able to do more runs. So um, we will have uh, a lot of folks returning tomorrow. Right. And it, it seems, at least according to, I didn't see any new updates today on, on the fire activity being any different than it has been the past few days. It feels like that at least uh, is playing in your favor for the time being, at least. Yeah. Yeah. So there's kind of two fires that we're now having to monitor. One is the one that's actually close to Yellowknife that was threatening Yellowknife, and that one's still being held. And uh, then there's the fire in the southern part of our territory, which is that mm-hmm. that's the one that impacted the highway on Saturday and had to shut it down. Um, but as of today, the the highways is you know open and and it's been blue skies and good driving. Um, but you know the wind can change and it could become smoky. So always reminding people to to drive to the condition, take a look to see if the highway is open before you leave. But 
the territorial government who also runs the the wildfire prepare or yeah the wildfire department um mm-hmm. they don't forecast over the next couple of days having that full day shutdown if anything it might just be intermittent or it might require a pilot car but so for those two fires things are looking good in the forecast right now Right. And how about the challenges just in reopening? Obviously, schools can't open right away. You're going to have to stagger the opening of some things. But grocery stores are going to be open, or some at least. Uh, pharmacies, you mentioned. Uh, healthcare is there. So you're sort of building the skeleton of all the things you need and then letting everyone else come back and after. But clearly, there's going to be, I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. No, and it's not fully. Uh, so, for example, for healthcare. Um, it won't be fully operational tomorrow. So if anybody needs dialysis or chemotherapy, if they're late in their late in the term in pregnancy, extended care, uh, the hospital won't be set up to serve patients like that. So folks will have to stay down south and they're going to transfer from kind of the evacuation supports to our medical travel supports, which is, you know, covers stuff like accommodations and food. So the hospital will take probably about a month they're anticipating to get fully up and running again. And that's where, you know, people will be like, we should wait for everything. And I was like, if we wait for everything, you're waiting down south for another month because the hospital is the longest. When it comes to grocery stores, um, they didn't bring back all their staff over the past couple of days because that would kind of, again, tip the scales and we'd have too many people and, and not enough healthcare staff. Um, so it's the... It won't be fully staffed like you saw before Yellowknife evacuated. So we're just encouraging people, you know, have patience, be kind. You know, employees are working hard, but there may be delays as you and all of your neighbors are going to go get groceries at the same time. Yeah. Um, I gather from talking to some people who've been there as part of essential services the whole time that the city looks a little different than when people left. Yeah, we did a lot of work um, to create fire breaks and so fire the fire breaks that we did were 100 meters wide and if wildfire experts provided advice to us on where they should be and so the west side of our community is a vulnerable spot because that's where for example um the fire is approaching the community was approaching the community from from that side mm-hmm. um most of our community does you know border a lake so that side's kind of protected you know the fire can't come from that angle and so there was a few more spots that they were like you know you got to do some some fire breaks there to protect critical infrastructure like a landfill the last thing you want in a wildfire is it for it to reach your landfill because then the fire is going to go for months and you've got like the toxic um chemicals coming from that so we do have these, uh, you know, I don't know if I could say the, the best fire breaks in Canada now. Um, but yeah, it was some intensive work done by the local contractors here. And uh, one in particular that was kind of behind a residential area, um, it's frequently used by residents as an informal walking trail. And the way that it was, the fire break was created, it kind of made it impassable for residents so we did put some gravel crush on that um just at the tail end of last week to to kind of transform it back into the trail that it was um but yeah it is the landscape is going to look different and so i know it will be tough for for a lot of folks to see the the trees gone in certain areas but it's it protected our community this year as well as for years to come 
Right. And just go, how about for the rest of the week? What are some of the challenges you have coming up, do you think, um, as people start to come back? As you mentioned today, you never know what's going to go wrong until it goes wrong. But just uh, broadly, uh, what are the challenges looking like for now in the next uh, 96 hours or so? Uh, yeah, it's it's getting everyone back and, and back in, you know, safely. Um, it is the time of year where dusk and dawn happens a little bit earlier and there's no snow on the ground. So we've got bison on the highway. And so, you know, there is an, um, an increased likelihood of vehicle and, and bison interactions. So definitely if, if it's dark out, telling residents to, to be careful, watch out for bison, slow your speeds down in certain areas. Um, but yeah, you know, it'll be coming back, getting, getting your house freshened up. Uh, you know, the, the fridge is going to need to probably throw a bunch of stuff out. So we do have our, our, yeah, our landfill open from Thursday to to Sunday. If you want to drop off any garbage, we've also got residential garbage pickup beginning again on Thursday. Uh, our community also has Part of our communities on Chucked Water and Chuck Sewer. That's like our oldest part of town. And so they have tanks of water that they generally use. Um, but this water has now been sitting still for three weeks. So, you know, there's advice on just use it for baths or, you know, if you're, you're boiling it to use to, to cook, but you shouldn't use it as your drinking water, you know, or maybe you're watering your garden with it. So there's uh, a number of different like kind of northern elements that people will have to uh do when they come home. Right. And it must be exciting for you. I mean, you've, you've lived through this for the past three weeks. I know your family has been separated as well. So you, like everyone yeah. else, must be looking forward to everyone coming back. Oh, for sure. I, um, you know, today there's a park out in front of City Hall and I was just doing a quick lap around to, to try to get some energy at the, my 2 p.m. slump there. And there was kids at the park laughing and I haven't heard kids or laughing um, for for three weeks. It was just like, oh my gosh, it's starting to feel normal again. Kids in parks, this is what, you know, before it was just three weeks of an industrious town. All I saw were like trucks, uh, work trucks. Everybody's just going to the job site, either working on the fire breaks or or heading to the government office, the um, emergency ops. So yeah, it was nice to hear kids laughing and seeing new faces too of, you know, colleagues came coming back into City Hall today. I was like, hey, I haven't seen you in three weeks. It's, I've only seen the same, I don't know how many, 10, 15 faces for three weeks. So, right. yeah, it's going to be really so, nice tomorrow. Uh, a taste of normal. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, best of luck to you and everyone in Yellowknife with the return. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is an interesting story. You know, provinces, every place is looking to attract the kind of immigration they need, right, to fill, specifically to fill labor shortages, particularly. That can be a challenge sometimes if you're not in what we usually associate with the parts of Canada that attract lots of immigration, like Vancouver or Toronto or even Montreal. Um, Saskatchewan, for example, they they need more skilled labor to come to Saskatchewan to uh, fill persistent labor shortages in the province. Uh, so the Scott Moe government is trying something a little bit different with something called the Saskatchewan Immigrant Nominee Program. I don't know how new the program is, but this one facet of it is new. Uh, they're going to invite about 550 skilled immigrants in dozens of occupations to settle in the province's permanent residence. Of course, they have to work with the federal government because this is a federal government jurisdiction. But what they're going to do is uh, try and attract certain people that the business community tells them they need. 
Here's part of the problem, or at least part of the issue. And there's been some criticism over where exactly those immigrants must reside before they get this invite. So the provinces look to recruit 35 residents of Ireland. Residents, not necessarily citizens, but residents of Ireland. 176 from Poland, Czechia, formerly the Czech Republic, Germany, Lithuania, Slovakia, and Ukraine, and 431 from India. So it's pretty limited to what they're setting out to look for. Um, so it's a first-of-its-kind initiative, and the province says it's about seeking those skilled workers that they need to fill those positions that need to be filled in ways where people coming can fill them quickly. So, for instance, one example that was pointed out to me today is if you have a long-distance truck driving license in Poland, that you can use in Saskatchewan. You're qualified, in other words. So you can avoid some of those extra steps and, you know, you settle in a little quicker. They're also looking at people who will, are more likely to stay in Saskatchewan. And they feel, again, that with more, with a larger community there already and so forth, that this will make for better opportunities for people to come in, settle down, do their jobs, find the work they need to do, and settle in. But it has led to some criticism because, of course, Canada's selection system uh, that, you know, really since the late 60s has been open to everyone, regardless of where they're from or what their nationality is. Um, so joining me to explain this a little bit more is Rochelle Burgoyne. She's Deputy Minister of Immigration and Career Training with the government of Saskatchewan. Rochelle, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Tell me a bit about this program because, I mean, I've read the headlines. I'm sure people may have seen articles about it. Uh, but tell me a bit about what the uh, what the thought behind it was and then when it was rolled out. For sure. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, ben, the Saskatchewan Immigrant Nominee Program is the provincial nominee program uh, in partnership with the Government of Canada and with IRCC. In fact, this year is the 25th anniversary of the SINP, and it's evolved over time. In 2023, we have 7,250 nominations. Uh, whereby the province selects economic immigrants to fill very specific labor market uh, demands in the province. At the same time, grow community, uh, welcome families into Saskatchewan. And they do that through Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada. So next year, we anticipate we'll have 8,000 allocations and the year after 8,500. And we've essentially used a tool that we have in our toolbox to select candidates around in-person labor recruitment initiatives that we're undertaking uh, to the end of this calendar year to be able to really work with uh, prospective candidates who are coming to Saskatchewan on pre-arrival information, coordinate settlement support, and improve our retention outcomes. When, I mean, a lot has been made, uh, and you can give, give me the facts on this, a lot has been made about the idea that there were certain people from certain countries targeted. Uh, Ireland was one of them. There were 35 people, I believe, from Ireland, then nearly 200 from different countries in Eastern Europe and Germany as well. Uh, and then uh, quite a large number from India. Tell me a bit about, about that, because I think that's what's been talked about a lot. But it sounds like there's a lot more uh, people other than that that you're looking at. Certainly. Uh, you're right. So it's a small portion of our overall program. We're looking at it for the purpose of this pilot between 5 and 10% of our allocation that is specifically selected where we have the opportunity to meet in person with those candidates. I think what's important to note is that uh, the invitation is to apply. So that's not a guarantee that those applicants will meet the program criteria or that they will be approved. They'll be assessed on uh, their education, their skills, their expertise, their language ability, and their intent to truly reside in Saskatchewan. Uh, at the same time, we have employers. And so when we look at our, our first recruitment initiative is in Poland at the end of September. 
We have 20 employers representing more than 200 jobs and the opportunity to bring together employers, um, regulators, community-based organizations, and immigration officials to be able to select candidates based on the highest likelihood of retention in Saskatchewan. We want to make sure that when we invite people to the province, they have the ability to work in their area of expertise and put together um, you know, a comprehensive pre-arrival support system so that not only do families have a good sense of what comes next when they get to Saskatchewan, but that they're attached to the labor market and hopefully avoids some of the historical criticisms of immigration around people who are um, overqualified working in jobs that are not commensurate with their skills and abilities. Right. And in this case, um, one of the things I was reading was that part of parcel of it is also uh, bringing people who, who, again, the likelihood of staying must be a big deal for Saskatchewan. Explain that because maybe an audience in Vancouver or an audience in Toronto mightn't understand that challenge in the same way. Has that been an ongoing issue for Saskatchewan is trying when people come trying to make sure they stay there? It has been. We have a retention rate of 65%, 64%, I believe, is, is the official number, pardon me. Um, and we want to do better. And so we have a limited allocation, although we are growing that allocation in the SINP. Saskatchewan's economy is growing. The opportunities into the future are promising. We have significant capital investment in infrastructure. We know that our job market is going to continue to grow. And so we want to make sure we use the tool that we have in the Saskatchewan Immigrant Nominee Program to attract individuals into opportunities that they're going to stay, raise their family, be a part of the growing communities that we have in the province. And we want to make sure that when we are making those assessments, we've had the discussion where possible with those candidates to ensure that they understand what we think is the really uh, competitive advantage of choosing Saskatchewan as home. And so some of the challenges that our other uh, provincial partners may face in terms of housing availability, for example, uh, cost of living, we have a bit of an advantage for Saskatchewan. And you'd want to point that out. Uh, Part of what I'd read was that selecting these particular groups, part of it was that you felt there was a better chance of integrating and that part of the issue of of immigrants not staying in certain places is sort of a failure to integrate. Often we'll see people pack up and go to somewhere where they feel like they'll have a better chance to integrate. And it sort of begs the question, do you think there's been deficiencies in the way that new new Canadians have been integrated as well in Saskatchewan, as well as trying to find people who seem to have had more success? We wouldn't classify it as a, a... an issue around integration, but more the opportunity to participate in the economy. And so we have strong community-based organizations. Uh, I think Saskatchewan has a reputation of being a warm, welcoming place with a fantastic football team, uh, sometimes inclement weather. But, you know, we think that it comes down to the ability to participate in the economy in the way that meets the expectation of that individual or family. And so what we want to do, for example, if you are a registered nurse, we want you to work as a registered nurse. If you are a agrologist, we want you to work as an agrologist. Uh, when we look at Poland as an example, um, the the truck driving licenses for um, short and long haul commercial truck drivers are recognized in Saskatchewan. So it eliminates that um, regulatory barrier that might exist in other jurisdictions. Likewise, in the Philippines, Saskatchewan has had extraordinary success in recruiting healthcare workers from the Philippines that have built a very vibrant Filipino Canadian community or an integral part of the healthcare system in this province. And so in the case of uh, Poland, as an example, Saskatchewan uh, welcomed five chartered flights of displaced Ukrainians in the last year. 
We've seen strong retention Mm -hmm. outcomes based on the similar economies of the two jurisdictions. We believe that Poland would bring uh, some of those same examples. But it's also important to point out that although the draw from Poland and Ireland, as an example, is drawn from residents of those jurisdictions, it is not limited to citizens of those countries. And so we're looking at a prospective mission in the United Arab Emirates, as an example. 100% of the of the uh, individuals that would be invited to apply from the UAE, it's a pretty good bet that they will be uh, not citizens of the UAE, but temporary foreign workers who are right. looking for a permanent residency pathway working in a similar regulatory environment. Uh, and so we really want to look at how do we serve those prospective applicants to the program to make sure that we're attaching to the labor market in a way that's meaningful for them and contributes to Saskatchewan's growth. Uh, Rochelle Borgoyne, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having us today. You know, Facebook uh, can be many things that are not great, but on a day like today, it's awesome because most of my friends who have children who are going to school post the photos of their first day back, right? And often they include a photo of them, you know, starting primary school and now they're finishing primary school or first day of school and now their last day, you know, first day of their last year of high school. So you see these incredible time lapses. Of course, it makes you feel like time has flown by very quickly, which it has, of course. Uh, But it's great to see all those photos of parents younger and older with kids younger and older heading back to school. So I know Ontario, BC, Saskatchewan, lots of places um, were opening today, the Tuesday after Labor Day, of course. And uh, this reminds me, I think way back when we had like a gray flannel pant uniform at one of the high schools I went to. And I think it was like 29 or 30 degrees in Montreal today, which was just not fun at all if you were wearing clothes that were essentially meant to keep you warm or you know the uniform was built for december not not summer and it was uh, incredibly warm but again great to see all those kids going back to school today all the way from you know kindergarten to grade school to high school and beyond and lots of talk over the summer of course about certain issues that need to be tackled one of them was smartphones in the classroom a big part of that was the united nations uh earlier this year unesco actually called for a global ban on smartphone use in schools to try and improve learning and potentially reduce cyber bullying as well so it sort of became a topic of conversation uh, over the summer uh here's sachin maharaj of the university of ottawa talking about it when it comes to phones and other technologies what is sort of best for the the learning and mental well-being of kids in schools Now, as far as I can tell, Ontario is the only province in the country that has an active ban on cell phones in the classroom. A similar one in Quebec didn't work. Others in Nova Scotia and BC didn't work either. Some schools and school districts, of course, have taken it upon themselves to put in their own sorts of limitations on use. There's schools in Montreal, schools in Alberta, um, and cell phone bans that essentially ask students to lock up their phones at the beginning of the day and keep them turned off during lessons. And again, as I mentioned, uh, this all comes after UNESCO called for a global ban on smartphone use in school. Easier said than done, says David Chorney of the University of Alberta. Although good in nature, and the root is, 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 a, is a positive in, intention, it's not as simple as that. Indeed. Well, Harley Clack is an Alberta junior high school teacher at Vincent J. Maloney Catholic Junior High, and they've been back since last Tuesday, but it's all kind of the same. Harley, thanks for your time tonight. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. 
So, uh, well, well, you know, school started. I guess you started a week ago, so it's not quite as uh, quite as yeah. quite as fresh fresh in the mind. But uh, it must be good to be back. Tell me a bit about this about smartphones in the classroom, because I can imagine junior high would be exactly the period where they're struggling to get used to sort of adapting with this thing they now have in their lives, but also being um, attentive students. Yeah, you're you're absolutely correct. The first has been great. Um, just to give you a, a little sort of background at the school that I teach at, you know, our cell phone use policy at our school is really kind of, it's gone through an evolution in the time that I've taught there. You know, thinking back 10 or so years ago when, you know, cell phones began to be seen in classes more and more, our school really sort of adopted, I think a lot of schools tried this early on, a very strict sort of zero tolerance policy. If the, if the phone was even seen in class, it'd be taken to the office and the student would lose it for uh, the remainder of the day. Um, but as time went on and cell phones kind of moved into the territory of you know, also being used as an actual learning tool in class for some students, you know, the policies had to shift to where we had to kind of pick and choose when students were permitted to use them in class and when not to. And, um, you know, mostly at the, at the teacher's discretion. And of course, when you're dealing with 13 and 14 year olds, you know, what I do and allow in my class might be very, very different than, you know, Miss Smith across the hall and what she does. And, you know, for junior high kids, I mean, they need that consistency. So really our most current policy now and that we started the year off with, we actually implemented it the last three months of last year because we started to see some issues arise. Uh, It's been pretty successful so far. So really at our school, our current policy is that, you know, students can use their, their phone before school. Uh, during break, during lunch, and after school, the expectation now is whenever they enter the classroom, uh, they place their device in a phone holders in every class. So when they come in, they have a specific number, they put their phone in there, and uh, whenever class is over, they pick their phone up, they go to their next class, and the next class has a very similar system. So they just put their phone in there. So really, they're allowed to carry it with them. If we don't see it in the hangar, I mean, or the phone sort of organizer, we're just assuming that they have it in their locker or it's not on them. But if it does go off uh, and it's on them, it's it's an automatic five-day uh, um, confiscation at school, which is a pretty big consequence for you wow. know, 13 or 14. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, that's heavy. like five, five years in adult life, right? Five days without, <laughs> yeah, you without your phone. Yeah, that, I could see that would be dramatic. How has it been received? Because I, I get the impression that, that a lot of even kids may understand why you can't have some sort of very distracting device on you. Uh, at the same time, at the same time, uh, it's tough to, impo- I mean, it's such a part of their, of their day-to-day lives now, period, oh. outside of school, that it must be really tough to impose those sorts of restrictions uh, on them, even within the classroom environment. Yeah, you know, it will, I mean, you just said it, this is how, this is how kids communicate now. I mean, this, this is their, this is their number one way of, of being social when they are not face-to-face in school. So, yeah, I mean, you know, most kids, you, you kind of ask the question how it's been received. You know, most students have been really on board with it. Like, I mean, we've only had a month. <laughs> we haven't had too much pushback. But even, you know, with the, with the students sort of, you know, their condition to come in, hand it over. And, you know, in the conversations that we're having more and more with the students, they're starting really to realize some of those some of those issues, whether it's sort of around the responsible use of technology or the realities of smartphone addiction or just getting the distraction of the classroom, they've, uh, they've actually bought in really, really well. 
Yeah, and and just as a teacher, you must notice a difference. I mean, you must have noticed a difference with and without the phones. I don't know how prevalent the phones were in the past, uh, and this system sounds like it makes sense, and it's and it's equal too, which always is important and consistent. Uh, but how right. much of a difference have you noticed when it comes to the teaching with smartphones around you and and in your kids, your students' hands? Well, you know, in my years of teaching, you know, the issues with these phones have kind of ebbed and flowed to a great degree. Um, you know, with cell phones in particular in schools, it's just that distraction element. And so, you know, it's it, whenever they, they use them in class or they, they were using them in class, you know, a student would pop them out and start texting away or doing whatever. You know, it's, it was never just the issue of that one student being distracted. It's the three or four other kids that are around kind of watching what they're doing while, you know, uh, you know teachers up there giving instruction or trying to help. And um, but I mean, the benefits for it. I mean, for some students, honestly, smartphones have become a godsend. And, you know, we have this policy in place. Take liberties here and there, especially, for example, with our English language learners. We have, you know, students immigrating from out of country to Canada who may have very little or no understanding of English. We've seen quite a large number of foreign students come in, especially Ukrainian students this Mm -hmm. year. And those students in these cases, we do utilize some apps on their phones, like translation apps have just been such a gift for some of these students uh, to help them navigate through. So we use we use a number of apps for them, like Google Translate. There's also another a, a really robust app that works well called Say Hi. So so definitely th- that's where the benefit is. But in terms of like getting those those phones, getting the distraction of the class, it's been um, it's been really positive. Right. And that, that, I guess that also allows you to make exceptions if need be, right? If there's a time for them to use their phones in class, you can just say, everyone go back, yeah. get your phones out of their holsters and off you go. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's, it's just sort of teaching the kids, I think, more than anything, just the responsible use of the technology. Um, you know, funny enough, the staff was talking today about, you know, even just teaching during COVID this, you know, this last couple of years when we went online. I mean, it, that really brought a lot of the tech you know, regardless of phone, laptops, uh, you know, um, tablets, what have you, that really brought a lot of this tech to the forefront. And so, you know, we went through a period where using some form of technology became really the most important factor for students to receive an education. So, you know, it was such a large part of that online experience. And of course, to surprise for anyone who, who taught online or you know, we had to attend an online meeting, regardless of whether you have an education for your job or whatever. I mean, <laughs> you know, your attention span tends to <laughs> get a little bit shorter. You start looking yeah. for other things to do. And uh, so, you know, it is a bit of like, I, I do think in the last year, there there has been a little bit of like a, a reprogramming of expectations for students, you know, when they're in the classroom. But so far, it's been good. Tell me a bit about ChatGPT, because this is one that's come up a lot, artificial intelligence. Uh, This would be the first year, the first full school year, where you've had to contend with its existence. Uh, Is that still a little little new for your your group, or is it something you've already had to start talking about? Uh, Well, it's it's new for sure, but definitely uh, towards the end of last year, I I had a couple instances with it. Um, you know, so far, I mean, we've only been in for a week, so we'll see how uh, we'll see how this this year goes. But you know, ChatGPT kind yes. of for for a yeah. lot of education or educators, it kind of came out of nowhere. <laughs> it seemed like um, we, uh, you know, I first heard about it maybe you know around spring last year, and uh, of course, lo and behold, I uh, I started getting some essays turned in that uh, 
looked really, really good. <laughs> and so, I mean, the, the kids, there's been the odd students <laughs> wow, that's of good, you. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, and I teach at junior high, so I teach language arts for grade eight and nine. So, I mean, with some of the stuff, you know, if, if students are utilizing chat GPT or, or software like that, you, you can tell fairly quickly and fairly easily that it's, uh, you know, might not be their work. Um, and, and that was the case with the, you know, a few of the kids that I had. Um, but I would say, you know, even towards the end of last year, it, at the junior high level where I teach anyway, it wasn't, um, it, it, it wasn't a huge issue, but definitely it's on our radar. And it's something that we, again, we talk to the kids about, I mean, we have, uh, we have discussions about, you know, plagiarism and, and cheating and, and consequences for that. So definitely it, it is top of mind with the kids for sure. It strikes me that, that just teaching today, uh, you have to be up on so many things. Not that our teachers weren't. I mean, I went to school a million years ago. In the, in, I went to high school in the 80s, so that was pre-internet. So back then, you know, yeah. it was still pretty, 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 pretty medieval. But, uh, right. but these days, it feels like you just have to keep up with so much stuff and be so aware of what your students are doing to, to be able to sort of talk to them and communicate with them. Yeah, for sure. You know, and it's like it's and like I was saying before, with sort of the move into COVID, um, that that really, really sort of integrated technology, all kinds of technology forevermore in education. I mean, you know, kids were always using some form of technology. We utilized it regularly. But now it, it is education, you know, and, we you know, today we're talking about phones. I mean, you know, phones have their place just like any kind of technology in class, I suppose, you know, laptops, tablets, what have you. But, you know, you can really also make the argument that all of this technology is distracting in, in some way or another. I mean, again, it's, it's just that responsible use aspect of it that is so important to model and teach the kids. And we're, we're always talking about that. I mean, we run into issues with students, you know, using their laptops and tablets in class as well, you know, gaming or you know, surfing the net, looking at things when they should be listening to me, learning about three branches of the federal government. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, of course, for a, for a 13 year old, <laughs> you know, playing a game is a lot more interesting than listening to me drone on and on about social studies. But, you know, again, it's, you know, you, you try to meet them at their level with this stuff. And, and it's all about trying to make that, you know, make it a teachable aspect to how, you know, to use this stuff responsibly. So, you know, it's always sort of a, we're always sort of weighing things out and trying to find a middle ground of what will work, it seems. Yeah. I remember I used to get, we used to get excited when they would roll the TV and the, and the old v- VCR into class, right? In the, yeah. in the 80s, you'd be like, oh, we're going to watch them. We're going to watch it. We're going to watch the NFB today. Isn't this awesome? And now I'm thinking, man, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's endless. But I guess there is that challenge. You have to try and meet them. I mean, this is part of their lives and you can't yeah. sort of have school be a technology free zone because that's too weird. Uh, but you have yeah. to try and sort of find that balance. Yeah. Again, I mean, like this is this is how they communicate. I mean, this is how the world communicates now. I mean, we're, we're I mean, it comes right. to a bit of a factor of maturity. You know, these things are addictive, or they can be, and even for adults, they can be. So, you know, it's sort of that teachable moment. You know, I, yeah. I mentioned before we teach a digital citizenship. We have a digital citizenship unit at the beginning of every year at our school, and we're teaching them all about the responsible use of tech, the realities of that smartphone addiction, you know, issues pertaining to appropriate interactions online, even outside of school. You know, there's so many other issues that kind of seep into the school with communications on social media that, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a central part of, of existence right now. 
Right. Do, you, do teachers have to leave? Is there a little slot for you up at the front of the, in, the, in those pouches? Do you have to leave your phone up there as well, or do you get to keep yours? No, the teachers get to keep them. We always tell the kids, too, you know, you'll see me with my phone, but that's uh, because, you know, if there's a lockdown or, you know, fire drill, we need to, yeah, we need to be able to communicate. Yeah. But, yeah. But, yeah, oh, yeah. Professor the kids, Clax, the, ch- checking the hockey scores. <laughs> yeah. Well, the kids will call you on it, too. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah. So you got your phone in your pocket, Mr. Clax. <laughs> so. Yes. Yeah. Those kids. You can't get anything by them. Uh, Harley, it's been great. Thank you so much for uh, for sharing the time with me tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Let's head to Ottawa, where the trials of Tamara Leach and fellow Freedom Convoy organizer Chris Baber began today. Chris Barber, rather, um, in Ottawa. Uh, the two are on trial for their role in a three-week protest. You'll remember well that blockade a year and a half ago that's uh, spark spin-off border blockades, and of course that declaration of a national emergency by the federal government. Uh, the convoy organizers face charges of mischief, obstructing police, and intimidation of parliament, as well as one charge of counselling for each of those three offences. Leach and Barber are facing charges of mischief, counselling others to commit mischief, intimidation, and obstructing police for their role in the protests that gridlocked the blocks around Parliament Hill for three weeks. Crown Prosecutor Tim Radcliffe used his opening arguments to say the case against Barber and Leach isn't about their political views, but the means they used to achieve their goal of ending all COVID-19 public health orders. He laid out how the Crown believes Leach and Barber crossed the line in trying to achieve their goal and committed multiple crimes. This is the first of at least a 16-day trial. Stephanie Taylor, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. So this is an interesting one because really it is about the right to free speech, the right to protest, which of course is a right that we have in a democracy versus where is that line and when do you cross it? How do you prove it if you have? Uh, can the Crown intends to point to evidence that argues that Leach and Barber went far beyond exercising those basic rights, whereas lawyers for them released a pretrial statement saying they do not expect this to be at the trial of the truckers' convoy. They believe the central issue will be whether the actions of the two of the organizers were a peaceful protest or whether they should warrant criminal sanction. We'll find out. We wanted to find out more about this. Michael Spratt is an Ottawa-based defense lawyer with AGP Law, and he joins me now. Michael, thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. A lot of eyes on this one, obviously. I think listeners may be entirely familiar with what unfolded over those three weeks, but might not understand exactly why there is a criminal trial or what the criminal trial involves. Uh, Just a bit of background here on what the two defendants face. And I gather they agree on the facts, but they don't agree on the intent. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a good way to put it. This isn't a trial about COVID mandates or lockdowns or government intrusion on personal life. This is a case about whether uh, these two defendants, Mr. Barber and Ms. Leach, um, exceeded their charter-protected rights of free expression and protest, and in doing so, committed mischief and intimidated uh, the citizens of Ottawa. Right. And when we look at what the the Crown will have to prove here, what is it that they're going to have to try to establish uh, for this court? The main thing that they're going to need to establish is that the two defendants, um, either directly or um, encouraged uh, other people to interfere with the lawful enjoyment of property. That means that either by their direct hand or others uh, acting under their direction or their influence um, prevented people from going to work, accessing amenities, and disrupted uh, their lives. And that that disruption um, was so significant that it crossed the line 
um, from that charter-protected right to protest, that charter-protected right to express oneself, and into the line of uh, criminality. Right, not to steal Tamara Leach's line, but to hold the line, was it or was it not crossing the line? Yeah, that's, I mean, that was in their opening statement, that was exactly the way that the Crown put it, that, you know, they didn't just ask people to hold the line, they actually encouraged and incited and themselves crossed that line between um, valid protest and criminal action. Tell me a bit about what the defense will have to uh, will have to prove here. Lawrence Greenspan, I think. If I worked in Ottawa, if anyone's ever worked in Ottawa, they probably interviewed Lawrence Greenspan. But uh, what are, what, are, what is the defense going to have to establish here then to counter the crown's the crown's interpretation of these events? Well, the main quiver in sort of the defense's uh, um, armory here is that they don't need to prove anything. The crown needs to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that not only did Leach and Barber actively or through their words and actions encourage people to break the law. Um, It's the Crown that needs to prove that. They need to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And that could be difficult. I mean, these are individuals who were self-professed leaders of this protest. Um, They certainly um, had a lot of social media um, statements, a lot of statements to the press. And, you know, this is a protest that occurred in the modern age with lots of video documentation. Um, But, you know, the main job for the Crown is going to be linking the actions of individuals um, to, you know, the the, uh, guidance or leadership of uh, Leach and Barber. Um, Just because they're leaders, they're not responsible for rogue actors, but, uh, you know, they can be held responsible if they played uh, a role in inciting or assisting or encouraging other people uh, to, to cross that line. I would imagine that's why we saw such an objection from the defense right off the bat today to the use of the word occupation. Yeah, I mean, I think some of this is is grandstanding on both sides. Um, this is a judge alone trial. Um, the judge hearing this trial is uh, is a well respected, um, highly intelligent, highly skilled judge who is trained to put aside sort of rhetoric and look at the facts that are proven in court. And so it doesn't matter what the Crown in their opening statement, which is not evidence, or what the defense in their opening statement, which is not evidence, calls the action. Um, This case is going to be determined on the evidence in court, um, the experiences of residents, the videos um, that uh, are going to be entered into evidence, the statements of the defendants, both uh, at the time of the protest and um, likely their evidence if they testify in court. Um, it's it's on that evidence that the judge is, is going to make their decision. So, you know, uh, the defense standing up and making objections about, you know, the terms that we used, that might have been playing more to uh, to the public who's watching and less to right. the trier of fact who's going to be actually making the decisions. You're right. That makes sense. Uh, I mean, these charges, when you read the mischief, obstructing police, uh, intimidation of parliament, counseling for those as well, don't seem so serious on their face. But I, I imagine it depends, right? It depends on what the what what the judge finds here. 
Yeah, I mean, that's why there's a range of sentences that are possible for for all offenses in the criminal code. You, there's a spectrum of offenses. Um, they can all be criminal, but some can be more serious than, than another. I mean, when we just look at mischief, that is easy to dismiss, right? It is sometimes, you know, a term that we use uh, uh, to describe a toddler who's up to no good, right? He's committing mischief. But mischief can be punishable by up to 10 years in jail. And indeed, um, this court will make its own findings of fact. But as we heard in the Rouleau Commission, looking at the Emergencies Act, there is no question that there was that this was not just, you know, graffitiing on a wall or, um, you know, blocking someone from getting into a convention center. This was uh, a weeks long, relentless uh, occupation. I'll use that word because it was an occupation of downtown that that inflicted real harms. That was a, the finding um, in the Rouleau Commission. And that's what the defense is going to be up against. Um, those real harms, the Crown's going to need to link them back to the actions of Leach and Barber, um, the self-professed leaders of, of this protest. Um, but, you know, those are the real harms that that were inflicted. And that is the mischief that we're talking about here. Is there a precedent to be set in the in this particular trial? I was hearing uh, as we went into this, of course, that unlike the UK, that there are no sort of defined laws around protests uh, and that it's a bit of a gray zone and that each case is sort of decided on its own merits. Yeah, and that's one of the defining features of the rights that we enjoy in Canada. Um, they are subject to reasonable limits and rights can come into conflict and there is a balance there. It's not an all or nothing approach. Uh, and so it will be interesting to see how um, how the Crown and the defense and ultimately the courts balance those rights. Um, and, you know, there could be some guidance there going forward. Um, you know, uh, we see environmental protesters, we see indigenous protesters, we see political uh, protests. Um, and we've seen some of these more disruptive and um more controversial protests coming from the right side of the spectrum. And there could be some guidance going forward there, but I, I expect that that guidance might be simple. Um, that guidance might be your protest can't shut down a capital city and interfere with the health and occupations of, of you know, a majority of the downtown residents. It might be guidance as blunt as that, but I'm sure that there, that the judge in the final decision, that she'll be grappling and balancing these different charter considerations. Well, Michael, thank you so much. No problem. Happy to, happy to have this conversation. A lot of muddy water, as Aretha would put it, Aretha Franklin would put it, in uh, northern Nevada over the weekend. You may have seen the images of the annual Burning Man Festival, which is held in the desert uh, in northern Nevada. It was just muddy, just muddy, muddy, muddy. There was so much rain that fell there Friday night into Saturday that the whole thing became, in many ways, impassable. Now, people started being able to leave the site, uh, at least the people at vehicles started being able to leave the site yesterday. That continued today. There was about 70,000 people, I believe, on site at the height of it. And it left a lot of people stuck for a while there. So the reports coming out were uh, were pretty. I mean, the words being used like shelter in place and you know ration your food and so on. And you know you won't be able to get out for a little while. All started to be uh, a little scary. There were no working toilets at one point. Thirteen millimeters of rain fell at the festival site on Friday alone, uh, which is a lot if you're in the desert. Well, one person who was there was photographer Mark Fromson. Uh, he's been uh, making the best of a soggy situation, and he's out of there now. I believe he joins me now. Mark, thanks so much. Yeah, nice to be here. So you you made you? it out. You made it out. Did, how long did that take? What was that like? Actually, believe it or not, it was about half the time uh, that it took last year. 
So we oh, got great. out in about four hours, and last year it was about nine hours. Yeah, I've heard a lot of that. I heard last year was like dusty and dry and hot, and this year was, you know, a whole new weather experience. But uh, tell me a bit about what it was like at its – because obviously, you, you know, outside with the headlines and the photos, everyone – thinks it was just, you know, terrible. And yet I've heard people who were there thought, oh, you know, it was bad, but not that bad. Yeah, it was really only bad for about 24 hours. Uh, it was kind of overblown. Um, you know, I can tell you a little bit about what happened to us, if sure. you like. So the, um, we were way over on the other side of the festival when the rain started, uh, visiting another camp that invited us over to say hello. And uh, the rain started coming down. And, you know, the forecast wasn't really predicting that much rain, just a little bit of a drizzle. So I think it caught us all by surprise. And we were stuck there for about three hours and we didn't have the proper clothing. So, you know, Burning Man is all about, um, you know, gifting and and taking care of the community and civic civic responsibility. Um, So they gave us literally the clothes off their back. They fed us. They kept us warm. And we really just had a really nice time for three hours with that camp. But, uh, you know, as it started to get closer to the evening, we realized that we needed to make a move to get back to our camp uh, to get shelter for the evening. So what we did was we fashioned raincoats out of plastic bags and uh, we tested uh, the mud a little bit with our shoes and found that just completely impassable. So we took our shoes off and we just went barefoot. Wow. Yeah, the mud looked, I mean, I, I've been in the desert when it's rained, and it's kind of hard to describe. I mean, yeah. that is, it, yeah, it's like paste, right? Yeah, it really is like thick mud. I mean, uh, you, you get like four inches on your shoes. Um, all the cars were stuck in their place. You couldn't move your bike at all. People were carrying their bikes on their backs. And, uh, yeah, but, when, you know, once you got your barefoot in, the, the mud didn't really stick to your feet. So you were able to walk barefoot. It was a little slippery. But, uh, you know, I'm from Winnipeg, so I'm used to walking on the ice. Right. So I, I put a lot of that training to good use. Yeah, good. And then, and then there was, I mean, then the shelter in place. I mean, I guess that was on the Friday night. Uh, but then, the, you know, the lack of bathrooms and so on, I guess the impacts of what happened. Uh, but I, I gather from just watching the images and, and, you know, that it sort of just continued on, right? I mean, people who go to uh, burners, quote unquote, people go to the festival are, are told to prepare. You're, you're, it's, you know, it's not in a grassy, it's not in a grassy place beside a suburban neighborhood, right? It's out of the way. So you're always quite well prepared. Yeah, you know, the burners are very well prepared. Um, you know, the Burning Man Festival started out uh, way back when in San Francisco, but once it moved to the playa, the people who came out there at the beginning, they really had, uh, you know, no services, no city, no organization to help them, no porta bodies or, or anything. Um, so by those standards, I mean, those old crusty burners would just laugh at us in our fancy RVs with our, with our paid ice service now. So, I mean, it really <laughs> yeah. wasn't that bad at all uh, in comparison no. with what they used to deal with out there. I was reminded of, of the images. I mean, obviously, I'm too young to have gone to Woodstock, but I was reminded of the images of Woodstock and just how, I mean, it, was, it looked even worse than that to some extent. But, you know, the, the show went on, right? Absolutely. You know, for a couple of days, really, the main events were kind of canceled. And so, uh, you know, we just adapted. So what you, what you saw was just hundreds and hundreds of block parties. You know, everybody sticking close to their RV, just going over to whatever camp close to them was hosting the party for the night or the day. That exodus, though, of RVs, I don't know if you've been, had a chance to see, there was, there was an aerial image, I think, taken yesterday of, of the, that, that convoy yeah. of the RVs leaving. And that looked like something you wouldn't want to be stuck in. But you said you were out in four hours, which is pretty, pretty decent. Yeah, you know, the photo that you saw was all of the people who didn't heed the advice of the Oregon of BlackRock Internet Radio to shelter in place. So those are people who thought they were smarter than the weather 
and smarter than the playa, and they went and thought they were going to drive across it. And you know what? They paid the price for their, uh, I guess I should say stupidity, <laughs> but I feel bad. I feel bad for them because you know what? Those those cars, once they got stuck in the mud, once the playa dries, it's basically like your car is encased in six inches of concrete. So to get yeah. those vehicles out of there is going to be quite the chore, I think. Yeah, I guess they. I guess they've had to do that, right? Some of those. Some of those vehicles were actually stuck there, so they've had to try and liberate yeah. them. Wow. So, I mean, this is obviously. Yeah. I mean, I've yet to hear a single. There must be people out there who thought, you know, I don't think I'm going to do this again. But clearly, uh, you're not one of them. It doesn't sound like you're one of them. You know, every year there's some sort of extreme weather event. Uh, you know, we had a few really nice years when I first started coming. But last year was was really really hard. I think way harder than this year, to be honest, because it was really really hot and dusty almost the entire burn. Uh, but this year we had really nice weather for the most part, uh, except for about a day and a half. So, I mean, for the hardcore burners and the people who love the festival, this is just nothing for them. We come out here prepared. You know, one of our credos is, you know, a radical uh, self-reliance, and everybody practices that. So no problem right. at all for us. And I guess you have quite this, I mean, just seeing some of those images from the weekend, you have quite the story to tell. Having been there for this, you know, uh, Burning Man 2023, I think will go down at least in terms of the public imagination as being as being certainly one of the more uh, the more seen around the world. Yeah, it certainly seemed like the uh, the media took hold of the story and ran with it. Um, I've heard everything from there was Ebola to zombies attacked to everybody, you know, (laughs) fell into a deep sinkhole. I mean, the rumors are everywhere. (laughs) Right. You could dispel all of them, I gather, right at this point in time. I can, yeah, I can. Yes. I mean, there's really a lot to do about nothing. Um, you know, really, the, there there was a bit of concern, though. Uh, I mean, there's real concern uh, for the people that very first night who weren't prepared because um, hypothermia was a real concern. So um, right. the org and, and the radio really, uh, you know, um, let people know that they should look for those people that are potentially out on their own. They didn't bring proper clothing. They're in a tent by themselves, and they don't have a support structure. So uh, try to find those people. If they're knocking on your door, invite them into your RV, give them shelter. And uh, those are the people that really uh, needed help that night. Well, Mark, thanks for sharing that with me, and have have a pleasant journey home. Thank you so much for having me. It certainly is a big bun. It's a very big bun. Big fluffy bun. It's a very big fluffy bun. Where's the beef? Some hamburger places give you a lot less beef on a lot of bun. Where's the beef? At Wendy's, we serve a hamburger we modestly call a single. And Wendy's single has more beef than the Whopper or Big Mac. At Wendy's, you get more beef and less bun. Hey, where's the beef? I don't think there's anybody back there. You want something better. You're Wendy's kind of people. Yeah, that has to be one of the coolest commercials ever made, right? I mean, when it came out, people talked about it for years. Um, and they asked that all important, that very pertinent question when in fast food commercials, where's the beef, right? Well, a series of lawsuits filed recently against fast food giants, including Wendy's, by the way, McDonald's, Burger King, Taco Bell, asks a somewhat more evolved question than that. It's why doesn't that burger or sandwich that I just saw in your advertising look like what I order? when I go to the restaurant, right? That those incredibly good looking burgers or whatever that you see in the, in the photographs that are always so appealing looking. Now, I think if you've had enough, you know, if you've gone to fast food restaurants enough in your life, I think we just kind of dismiss it because they all do it. Right. And then when you go and get the real thing, it rarely looks like that. Now it's not completely different, but it is always somewhat different, but these lawsuits, class action lawsuits filed in the States targeting those four major brands, were each filed on behalf of dissatisfied customers who allege that the companies make their menu items look bigger and better in marketing than they really are. And again, I think most of us take those photos 
uh, with a grain of salt or a splash of ketchup or however you want to put it. So are they really deceptive? Uh, joining me now with more on this is Spencer Sheehan. He's a lawyer in New York. Spencer, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. This is an interesting one because I think we're also uh, inured to the fact that these photos are always a lot nicer looking than what you actually get in the restaurant, that we kind of don't think about it. And yet here we are. This has actually become the subject of something quite serious. Well, you're exactly right. And the fact that we all generally have accepted uh, you know, this practice for so long really doesn't change that it is, in fact, a deceptive practice. While you and I and your listeners from our years of experience may have become inured to this, the folks who are younger than us, our children and their children, they have to learn that, and they shouldn't grow up in a world uh, where, you know, they're, uh, you know, disappointed about what the size of the burgers look like relative to what they're actually getting. So I think it's a good place to start. It is, because I I was trying to think today before talking to you, I was trying to think about any other form of advertising where we accept that the product doesn't, and and I guess it depends sometimes, but is there any other form of advertising that compares? That's that's an excellent point, and I can't think of any one off the top of my head. It's unfortunate that there's been so much of a focus away from the pictures, and we've become so accepting of what is, I think, a deceptive practice uh, and that we're willing to just accept it. And, and I can't think of anyone right now. So yeah, this I mean, is at I, the top of my you know, list. Yeah, you know, you look at cars, the car commercial tends to look like the vehicle, right? I mean, of course, it's always polished and brand new and it looks, you know, it looks as spiffy as can be, but it's the same. It's going to be essentially the same vehicle. Uh, tell me a bit about the legalese behind this. So if, if there are, in fact, class action lawsuits targeting um, these companies, what are they attempting to prove? Well, that's a great question. And these suits are still in the early stages, but as you and your listeners may be aware, Uh, One of these cases targeted against Burger King for their Whopper has had some initial success. That basically means that the judge decided to not throw it out. And that was because the plaintiff and the lawyers alleged that the burgers in the pictures were, in fact, uh, substantively uh, presented differently. For instance, it it was alleged that the burgers in the pictures were not cooked, and while Sometimes that may be indicated in the small print. A burger that is not cooked but otherwise made to look like it's cooked will look substantively bigger such that the customer and the purchaser will expect that they're getting a beef patty that is maybe 25% more. Now, it might be the same weight when it is cooked, but it is nonetheless sufficient for this case to proceed and to see how much Burger King knew about you know, what it could have been doing to maybe goose their sales a little bit and to make their burger patties look a little bit juicier. So it's yeah. going to be interesting to see what develops. Yeah, because I guess Burger King responded to, a, to another media organization about this that I was reading. They said, you know, they're the same patties. Those are the patties that we serve everywhere. And, and you know, but therein lies the whole idea of deceptive advertising, right? Is it, is it in fact, okay, it's the same patty, but if you're not, if you're not cooking it to its full size, then are you deceiving? And, and I think that question is uh, pretty clear because if there was, in fact, nothing to hide, then they should present that patty cooked. 
in the same way the end purchaser or the buyer is going to buy it and going to receive it. So it's showing customers one thing, but giving them another, even if, in fact, it is the same patty. The customer who sees it, they don't know that the patty is uncooked, but they know that it's substantively and to the naked eye bigger. And that can't be denied because the cooking process obviously makes it a little smaller. Uh, Tell me about the eye test, because I was curious to know how that fits into into the legal lexicon. Well, that's, you know, something that I think judges and, you know, potential juries are focused on because they have to look at it from the perspective of what the regular folks seeing this are going to expect. And at some point, should this case continue to proceed, they're going to have surveys from both sides and they're going to be based on what the individual folks who see this plump, juicy burger, maybe 25% larger than what is uh, received and whether or not that makes a difference and whether or not that drives the needle for the individuals to spend more money for this bigger, juicier Whopper. So it does come down to what regular consumers you know, look at and what they see and, you know, whether it passes the eye test. Yeah. For me on the eye test, at least in Canada, I mean, I always find that fast food in the States is a little bit better than it is here. No offense. No offense to, our, to Canadian fast food franchise owners. Uh, but for me, the eye test was always fails on, on, on the tomato and the lettuce. I mean, whatever tomato and lettuce they use in those images, when you see a Whopper or a big or any of them on screen, you're always like, wow, that looks really good. And of course, when you get the real thing, it's never... It's the tomatoes that you can you can never find the tomatoes as far as I can tell. Well, you're exactly right, and that the tomatoes a little bit secondary because the main course here is the beef, as right. Ed indicated. Because you know it's generally understood, I believe that the tomatoes and lettuce will wilt a little bit for, uh, with respect to you know the water and you know in the process. But this, the main serving here is the beef, and that represents probably you know, 90% of the total cost of the product of what the customer is buying. So I understand why the attorneys and the plaintiff in this case focused only on the beef, because that's a meteor target. Spencer, I guess if you could put on your, your other hat here, what do these companies have to prove uh, for this not to work? Well, that's a great question. And it's actually, I believe, in their favor. They don't have to meet a high bar in order to, unfortunately, in my opinion, uh, defeat this case. And one of the things that they're going to be working on right now is surely attempting to show through evidence that they showed these particular burgers and they presented these uncooked burgers to you know, their own panels of consumers who most likely will say they weren't deceived. And they'll also say that, you know, they relied on, you know, various uh, studies of consumers to show that there's no deception with respect to the uh, presentation of uncooked burgers. Uh, They're going to try to challenge, you know, whether or not the individual in question as the main plaintiff saw only the uncooked burgers in the advertisements. So there are a lot of technical and procedural uh, you know, arrows uh, that they're going to attempt to, you know, in order to have success. So it's an uphill battle for the plaintiffs. Sure. And, and these are all companies, of course, who, who fought more than a few lawsuits in their times, as far as I could tell. 
Uh, absolutely. And, you know, they have that advantage and they have uh, the advantage of being able to uh, litigate this case uh, almost uh, to the end. And, you know, I'm hopeful that, you know, there will be some changes to this practice regardless of the outcome of this particular case. And there'll be a little bit more truth in advertising when it comes to those menu boards. Yeah, because, I mean, it feels like, in some senses, it feels like a bit of a victimless victimless thing. Uh, and at the same time, though, if you, as you mentioned right off the top, if you talk about the spirit of it, if you talk about whether other companies could get away from, like, if you were to see, I, I mean, you know, people stage their houses when they sell them and so on. But there are, again, there's that fine line between what is deceptive and what is just promotional, right? What is it, what is putting your best foot forward and what is deception? That's an excellent point. And yes, while, you know, there is no crime or deception in staging one's house when you are showing it to potential buyers, there, you know, there does, uh, you know, come, you know, a line. Like, let's say maybe if you'll uh, put, you know, extra, um, you know, extra mirrors to make it look like, you know, a room is larger than it is or to maybe cover up a potential defect that, you know, potential buyers would look at and ask questions about. So it's not so clear as to just say, well, this is the same thing. And just like home buyers are not deceived because they're going to be able to inspect the home first. Uh, there are, I believe, other tricks that uh, will be uh, revealed, hopefully, in the course of you know this case now that the plaintiff has been given the ability to move forward. Hopefully, we'll see that the Uncooked beef is just one of the, you know, the tricks that uh, Burger King and, you know, maybe these other companies are using. Right. And those tricks of the trade. Uh, Spencer Sheehan, thank you so much. I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. And here's one that I found really interesting, only because I didn't know much about it. And I, I did the old YouTube test of this. So Vegas Nerve or Vegas Nerves, uh, not Las Vegas, a la Vegas, speaking of Nevada, but V-A-G-U-S. So if you YouTube Vegas Nerve, you get like a thousand things that come up. Vegas Nerve activation, Vegas Nerve exercises, Vegas Nerve reset, stimulation, meditation, stimulation, music, massage, anatomy, yoga, frequency, exercises to rewire your brain from anxiety, breathing exercises, you name it, and it all ties back to the vagus nerves or nerves, right? So what is it? Well, the best description I've seen is that it's actually a pair of nerves. Uh, It is a two-way electrical superhighway, which allows communication between the brain and other vital organs, such as the heart and lungs and others. And it's been shown to help control things such as the heart rate, breathing, digestion, even immune responses. It's used in treatment of epilepsy. There's a way of stimulating that I believe, I'm not going to go on a limb on this one. I'm not a doctor, uh, but it does, is used in conjunction with with fighting epilepsy. And again, on social media circles and well-being circles, it's been talked about a lot of late. And I wanted to know more about what exactly it is. So I came across a really great article written in a publication called The Conversation by Teresa Larkin, who's an associate professor of medical sciences at the University of Wollongong in Australia. And she was kind enough to um, give us some of her time. Teresa, thank you so much. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Yes, you too. This was an interesting one. I imagine you've gotten a lot of response to that article because all of a sudden there was a, a many others of late about uh, the vagus nerve or nerves. Uh, what exactly is it and why are we talking about it so much all of a sudden? <laughs> I know. It's crazy when 
something just goes, you know, bushfire crazy, doesn't it? So it does. that's right. We've got two. We've got two vagus nerves, as you said, a left and a right, and they're the main nerves of our parasympathetic nervous system, and that's the opposite to our sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight response. So they're definitely known for their roles in we call it rest and digest and restore. So people who have been studying yoga and meditation and breathing and things like that, they've long been talking about the vagus nerves. It's just now that there's this real, you know, trend on, on TikTok and on social media. And I think there's a lot of the claims are true, but it also brings about, you know, lots of other claims of people that maybe just jump onto this and sort of try and extend it out to something that, that may not be exactly fully scientific. But yeah, they're very important nerves. As you said, they connect to nearly all of our organs, so the heart, the lungs, and nearly everything in the abdominal cavity. And they've got important roles in slowing down our heart rate, in increasing the blood flow to our digestive system, and giving us a really healthy digestion, healthy metabolism, and as you said, even positive effects on immune function and any inflammation. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason I was curious is because you start to see there's when you see a tidal wave of information about something, mm. you start to try to trying to figure mm-hmm. out what's what's true and what isn't. Uh, clearly, mm-hmm. this, you know, there's nothing new about the vagus nerves themselves. They've been mm-hmm. studied, I gathered, for quite a while. But it's it seems like it's something that people have started to focus on as something that could be um, a, a, not a not a you know not a not a easy path to good health and good mm-hmm. mental health but certainly a, something that could be explored as something that uh, could improve people's well-being definitely and i think it's a good thing because we've had a lot of focus on the fight or flight response and you know ongoing sympathetic activation and people would have seen there's also probably equivalent trends of cortisol dysregulation and that's related to the ongoing fight or flight and sympathetic so it's kind of nice that now there has been this shift to focus on the parasympathetic, which is essentially the antidote to that stress response. And it's true that we can definitely do things to stimulate the vagus nerve to then put it into a balance where our parasympathetic, which is the good rest, digest, restore, is greater than the sympathetic. So one of the things that people can even experience really easily themselves, but if you put your index and middle finger down near the base of your thumb where you can feel a pulse, When we take a deep breath in, our pulse actually quickens and that's because we've got extra blood returning to the heart and that could be a little bit of a sympathetic response. But then when we breathe out slowly, our pulse will slow right down. So we have natural variation in our heart rate, so that's heart rate variability. And so that's probably the way by which this was first recognised in terms of what we can do ourselves. And so it is true that taking long exhalations or deep breath in and then a slow breath out does stimulate the vagus nerve. And partly it's because their connection between the brain and the body is two-way. So when we're doing something in the body that signals back to the brain that we're safe and we're secure, and breathing slowly is a signal of that, you know, because breathing fast is like, oh my gosh, I've got to get out of here, you know, I'm stressed. But slow breathing signals to the brain that we're in a safe and secure situation so then the brain says excellent you know i can go into my restore mode which is parasympathetic and that does lower our stress response it lowers our heart rate with the lowering of inflammation that's obviously really good as well because high inflammation is a risk factor for lots of chronic diseases like heart disease and depression and obesity and so then it also does have effects on mental health And so the good thing is that those activities, they 
increase our vagus nerve activity at the time. But if people are regularly doing them and regularly able to stimulate their vagus nerve and reduce their stress response, then overall they will be in a healthier balance more long term. Yeah, because it feels like we very much live in a world that is much much more focused on the flight or fight than it is on mm-hmm. sort of slowing things down and recovering. I guess there's no. I was reading, but this is actually in your article. I'm not. I was reading. You were writing that um, there, there's not <laughs> really a way to measure measure health, right? In that way, like you can't. Is there a way of sort of figuring out whether you're in a good spot, vagus nerve wise, or not? Yeah. So definitely, the greater the vagus nerve activation and parasympathetic is associated with a lowered heart rate, but actually also with increased heart rate variability. And so I guess a lot of people do have wearable devices, you know, whether it's their watch or a monitor, that is able to indicate that to them. And so that's definitely something, you know, the lower your resting heart rate, that's an indication that you've got a greater activity of your vagus nerve. And also an increased heart rate variability is a positive thing because that shows that if you have a quickening of your heart rate, then you can slow it down by the slower breath. So we do still need stress responses in the body because, you know, like you say, there's, there's stress everywhere. You know, we're always going to be encountering physical and psychological stresses as humans, but it's having a way to then dampen that stress response so that as it was meant to in evolutionary purposes, it was there for short term. You know, it was there for us to run or to work something difficult out, but then it should be dampening off. So the thing with the vagus nerve and and measuring it, especially with that sort of indirect measure of heart rate variability, is that long term, we want to not be in that chronic stress. So having a higher vagus nerve is is good. And other examples of even when we have, you know, an increase in sympathetic and then parasympathetic are things like um, sports competitions. You know, when that's in a social environment and We've got rules, so we understand what's happening. You know, it's actually good to stimulate our sympathetic nervous system, you know, get blood pumping to the muscles, pumping to the heart. But then when that's finished, because we feel secure and it's social and socialization is a very important thing as well for the vagus nerve, then we've got the vagus nerve to come in and really bring us back down. So that's a great way for us to practice a stress response, but then coming back from it. Yeah, and and how can you? I mean, not not not. How can you work out the vagus nerve, so to speak? Uh, is there ways you can sort of, if you think you're someone who probably spends, like myself, probably spends a little bit too much time in the flight or fight response, right? Um, <laughs> is there a way to sort of to to to, to better uh, cultivate? Because I know that that's part of what all the videos are about, right? Is you know unleash mm-hmm. your your inner vagus nerve. Uh, but is <laughs> is there actually ways to do this that 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 are factual? Yes, yeah, so definitely the slow diaphragmatic breathing, yoga practice, anything where you're slowing your breathing down and especially having a long exhalation, they definitely stimulate the vagus nerves. And also, you know, we know that those things are relaxing, especially in the time. But there's kind of lots of different things. So if that's not you, I think even just having the awareness that sometimes you feel like, okay, I'm going to breathe in for three and out for four. And that might be someone on their run. You know, that might be their their rhythm, that they breathe in for three, out for four, or, or walking or swimming. But even just cold water immersion on the face, actually that does stimulate the vagus nerve via a reflex of other nerves that innovate the skin. And so, and things like singing and humming, you know, they do stimulate our vagus nerve, but it still needs to be in a sort of a social and a supportive way. So I said to someone earlier, I don't think it's that if you're humming, but you're like, mm, because you're angry humming, probably yeah. not, <laughs> probably not stimulating your vagus. But all those things that are to do with, you know, um, 
social connection and feeling safe, they, they do um, do that. One of them that I found interesting to look up is that people talk about eye movements stimulating the vagus nerve. Some of them I don't know that, you know, twisting of the head and the eye movements, we need to look into those more scientifically. But when I looked up about the eye movements, I found that there actually is a reflex between moving the eye muscles and stimulating the vagus nerve. And it's something that they speak about as kind of a risk in certain surgeries. But it made me think, you know, I wonder if that's why one of our natural reactions when we feel stressed is to press our eyes. Obviously, this is going to be a very short-lived influence on our vagus nerve. And so I think that's the key with this. We need to be thinking about activities that can provide us that increased vagus nerve stimulation, but more, you know, consistently at multiple times during the day, at different days, whereas things like, you know, the eye movements and singing and humming, it's only going to really work for while you're doing it. Right. Makes sense. What about all these these sort of um, you know sort of stimulation things that are out there? Because I gather mm. that's part of it as well. You sort of wear something, or mm-hmm. what do you make of the, what do you make of those? Yeah, so it's really interesting that the FDA did approve the um, use of vagus nerve stimulators, which are inserted. So that's like an invasive technique, but they have been approved decades ago for use in epilepsy, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And even more recently, for use in depression. Usually, in both those cases, it's for treatment-resistant epilepsy and treatment-resistant depression. And they have shown that the stimulation of the vagus nerve. So essentially, it's almost like a pacemaker in where the pacemaker is inserted, you know, under the skin in the chest, and then there's wires that stimulate just one side of the vagus nerve. And they have shown that that does result in positive changes in the neurotransmitters in the brain in the case of depression and that it does stop some of that electrical conduction in the case of of epileptic fits. But they're obviously, that's an invasive way, you know, you've got to get those put in through surgery. But it has come out more recently and there's definitely increasing research of uh, stimulators that can be used transcutaneous, which means across the skin. Mm-hmm. And researchers have found that there's an area of the ear, so the, the front part that sticks out a little bit, and that's actually innervated by a branch of the vagus nerve. So they've looked at using little devices that you essentially just clip on there, and that gives the electrical impulses through the skin. And they have found that that does have an, a positive effect in depression, similar to what antidepressants have, which is obviously nowhere near 100%. But... The benefit is that it's a similar efficacy rate, but without all the negative side effects of antidepressants. So I think that this is something that will be really increasingly researched because it's something that's non-invasive and it's direct affecting the vagus nerve and then the balance of the neurotransmitters in the brain. So still lots to learn here. What's the word, did you say? Still, Still lots to learn here, obviously. Lots to learn, yes, absolutely. Yeah, still lots to learn and... And I think that's where, you know, lots of um, scientific discoveries, I feel like they do come from things where people have known for a long time that things like yoga and meditation can have positive benefits on health. But then it takes people really looking into that and thinking, what are the mechanisms behind that? And then the next step, I think, is always, well, how can we take advantage of that to specifically treat conditions or to help when people have a genuine imbalance? So, yeah, it is exciting that there's a lot more research in it. Um, and, I mean, actually, to be honest, years ago, they did use a vagotomy where they cut the vagus nerve as a treatment to some stomach diseases like stomach ulcers and things because years ago they knew that the vagus nerve was helping with the 
environment of the stomach in a positive way and they kind of thought, well, let's just cut that one off. So I don't think that happens anymore. <laughs> no. but, um, yes. but, yeah, we're, it's interesting that there's always new, much to be learnt. Well, Teresa Larkin, I had many questions and you've answered all of them. So thank you so much for taking the time tonight. I appreciate it. Amazing. No worries. Thank you. 